everybody. It's Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and welcome back to the Food Institute podcast. You might recognize this week's guest from his work on Spike TV's Bar Rescue or from the Food Network, but Brian Duffy, who's joining us, is also an independent restaurateur, and he also has a consulting business for independent restaurants, so that makes him a great choice for today's conversation, which is going to focus on America's independent restaurants and how they're contending with all of the issues in the current day in the wake of the pandemic. But before we get started, I have a humble ask. Please share this episode with your friends and family. Sure, social media and other marketing efforts really do help us grow, but we're finding that word of mouth is still the best way to get the word out there regarding this podcast. So if you could do us a favor, please follow, like, and share, and then maybe bug a family member or two to do the same. We'd really appreciate it. So as promised, Brian Duffy's joining the Food Institute podcast. So welcome, Brian. How are you doing today? I'm pretty great, man. I'm pretty great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're really excited about it. And, you know, what really spurred this for me and what made me want to talk to you today is an article I saw you write recently on the labor shortage. I think you have a really interesting vantage point, you know, being a consultant for independent restaurants, plus, you know, obviously your TV experiences, you've been around the country, you've kind of seen this on a level that a lot of people haven't. So with that opening there, what I want to take a look at, you know, in that piece, what you said is the labor shortage was practically warranted. And I think, you know, some people might see that, see that it's a little bit inflammatory, but I heard it and I was like, you know what, I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. So I kind of wanted to start there. Can you kind of explain your thinking on this? Well, I mean, I mean, if we want to go back pre all where we are right now, you know, if we go back that two years prior, we were in abundance, you know, we had everything at our, at our, at our fingertips is the way that it was. And, you know, what I've watched managers and owners and operators do over, over the last, I mean, 30 years really is, you know, you're, you're scheduling people based on what you're expecting to do. Uh, that staff member is then planning on working that, however, 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week, 60, whatever their, their deal is that they want to do, they're, they're, they're planning on that. And in reality, they're hoping that it's going to be a busy shift because if it's not, they're probably going to then get cut early and they're not going to make any money that day. And that's a really tough thing to go through, you know, but we have to schedule. We have to make sure that our staff is making money because that is also our responsibility. We have to make make sure that they're making at least that minimum wage. And in Pennsylvania, when you think about what that is, you know, we have a $2.83 minimum wage for tipped employees over here. So if I go in and I work on a, you know, and, and obviously tip tax credit and all that good stuff that goes in brings it up to 725, you know, I think we may have raised it recently. I, I, I just started a new business here, but, but it, it's a really tough thing to plan on. And it's a tough thing to focus on when you don't really know what's going to happen around here in the winter. Look, if it snows, you're screwed. That's it. You're cut. You know, same thing happens with cooks. We send our cooks home. Hey, you know, uh, super slow tonight. Why don't you run home early? Well, now I'm taking the responsibility that we we normally had for four people down to three people. And they've got to do that responsibility. And the guy who got cut is now missing out on two or three hours on his thing when guess what? He may have needed that money to pay rent. So it's a tough situation to run a business and project and have to make those cuts. Yeah, it was interesting. One of the examples you shared was actually of your daughter working a double during a storm, kind of a lot of those situations you were just talking about. Uh, And, you know, you said, you know, a lot of times you have uh, restaurant employees, usually servers who are working for that 283 per hour at the end of the day, doing cleanup, doing other stuff like that. So I'm just wondering, you know, your perspective running a restaurant, how does that affect morale? And like, what can you do to try to change that dynamic a little bit? Well, for me, what I do with most of my clients is, is our, our, the beginnings of, beginning of our shifts are automatically started with a premium. 
It's just that simple. And and my rules of premium are we never ever discuss anything that went wrong from the shift before. There's just no reason for that. That's a one-on-one -on -one situation. Uh, a funny, my um, my daughter sent me a message. Uh, she said, you're not going to believe what got sent through to me today. And it was at a new restaurant where she's working. And it was the manager who sent the, who the opening manager sent a text message through to everybody who closed from the night before and said, you guys, uh, the close was so horrible last night that I may not be able to open on time today. Well, one, that just told your entire staff that they did a really horrible job last night. It doesn't matter that they did however many sales. We're automatically starting their day off with a really bad mindset. The other part of that is, in reality, is it the employee's fault or is it the manager who, uh, who signed them out, who checked them out, who said that they can go home? So we have to start off on a positive day set. That's just the mindset of, of that first part of the day is really important. Um, so that's where we start. And then we also do, you know, we try to keep everybody super interested through our pre-meal because when we talk about pre-meal, we talk about the items that we're going to be selling for that day. I want everybody to taste them. I want to talk to them about fun contests. We want people to come in and work for us who we're going to educate who we're going to engage with rather than, okay, you make 283. It's time for you to hurry up, get your side work done and get out of here. You know, kitchen staff's the same situation. If I cut one guy, the responsibility of closing down the entire kitchen is now taken off of the four and put onto the three. So it's a really tough world to work in. Yeah, and I'd like to talk about labor a little bit more there. One of the things you put in that article was that, you know, it used to be that workers were coming in for interviews, but in a lot of ways, it's kind of shifted now that you're interviewing yeah. this worker to try to convince them to come and work for you. You kind of talked about that a little bit in that last answer, but I would like to dive in that a little bit more. You know, what kind of things should a restaurant operator be looking at right now beyond scheduling? You know, I think that your morale aspect there is definitely a part of it, but what else can you be offering, you know, prospective employees at this point? I mean, one education, you know, we always talk about upselling to our front of house staff. If we're upselling, we're getting, we're, we're gaining more revenue. Okay. That's the, the, the idea behind upselling. Oh, Hey, you guys want to get a burger? How about a side of fries for $3 more? Okay. That, that's upselling. And that's what we, I hear a lot of restaurant operators, including corporate operators talk about all the time is the upselling. But my belief is that education creates the upsell. The more educated that your staff is on the equipment that they're working with and the equipment that they're working with is one POS and two, your menu. Okay. There's too many chefs that are out there that are still to this day in 2022 that are still keeping the recipes secret. Okay. Well, I can't tell you what's in there. Not allowed to know that. That's my special ingredient. That's this and that. Well, you know, I mean, we need to be able to discuss this with our staff because from one, it, the more they know about the product, the, when they're listening and engaging with that guest, what they're going to get back from that is, oh my God, this woman talked about in the beginning how much she loved French fries. And then my response is going to be, you got to try our French fries. We use a five sixteenth cut, or we have a special blend that goes on top of that. That conversation engages the guest and then it brings them up and they're like, Oh my God, I must have those French fries, you know? And, and that's a, that's a huge part of it instead of, well, do you want another side of fry for $3? You know, and that's what we get most of the time because one, a lot of operators do not share the entire menu with their staff. They're not giving all the knowledge that comes along with that. So when I walk through my restaurant, which I have a small place in the outskirts of Philadelphia, my daughters are my cashiers. My girlfriend is my cashier. Uh, you know, my sister works up front. My nephew is cleaning the, the restaurant. He's my busser and runner. But they know the product. 
they know the product and they believe in the product. So when they are getting an order on the phone and they're saying, oh, Mr. Johnson, hey, it's great that you're on the phone with us. Last time you ordered the poutine, I just want to let you know we're doing another special today with a different poutine. You know, we're really trying to communicate with our guests across the board. So by educating your staff, they're one, going to be a little bit more loyal to you because they feel more comfortable about what it is that they're doing rather than, oh, I mean, that, that's a whole nother. I have a, a whole story about what it's like when we first open a restaurant. And, and let me let me stop for a second and kind of go back to that part. The education of what we do with our staff is imperative to the ultimate success that you're going to see on the floor. OK, and I will attribute that to this. Let's just re realize what happens when we open a restaurant. When we open a restaurant, we bring our staff in a week or two beforehand. We bring them in. We have a menu class. We're talking to them about the wines, the different spirits that we have. We have different brewers that are coming in. The chef gets up and talks to everybody and communicates about the menu. Every single ingredient is discussed and poured over and questions are asked and uh, decisions are being made at that time. So now let's fast forward to, uh, you know, the third month of being open. Okay, so now we have an interview process. Have you ever worked in a restaurant? Okay, great. You're now hired. Here is your packet that we need you to take a look through. Here's the menu that you have to take a look at. Fast forward now to nine months from that period where we now have somebody coming in. You're saying, hey, just so you know, you're going to trail with Joni for the first you know, five days, and then we're going to put you on the floor by yourself. Fast forward a year, and now it's, hey, have you ever worked in a restaurant before? You know, so by eliminating all of that education that we started with, we're, we're doing our staff a disservice. So when a staff, when staff feels uncomfortable on the floor, they're not going to be loyal. They're not going to sell for you. And it becomes a job rather than a place that they enjoy working. So I really believe in, um, in educating staff and I, and I believe in empowering them to have conversation and, and talk to managers about different things, especially in this day and age. Yeah, I was going to say I've worked like three months as a cook at one point in my life. That's all I could handle. So, you know, yeah. to you, like a lot of credit to you, but it's a grueling job. It really is tough. I brought it up on the show before. Like I have an unbelievable amount of respect for people that do this. And when you find out yeah. how much they're getting paid, you know, it doesn't really, you know, it's not a surprise that you saw so many people, especially coupled with the pandemic to see, you know, all of a sudden maybe your job security was yeah, non-existent, you know, and to have that kind of wage, it's no surprise to me that people are moving into different industries at this point. Right. Well, so. You know, it's really tough to pay a super quality wage on a place that does, you know, I mean, you look at a lot of places and they, they're running a property that, that might only be doing five or $6,000 a week in food, but it's bringing in a pretty good revenue for them on the booze side or whatever it is. But if I can, and it's hard to say, hey, look, I'm going to pay you 25 bucks an hour right off the bat because, but I'm only doing $5,000 a week. So you take that 25, you put that towards the 40 hours and you're like, oh my God, how am I doing this? So there's a lot of tough. And then that one person is gaining a lot of responsibility because I can't have four guys on the line now. Now I can only have two guys on the line or girls who understand that I mean that. But when it comes down to uh, to our kitchen staff in every restaurant that I work, when I own the restaurant, I train every single cook. I want each cook to work with me so that I can show them. And I explain to them right off the bat that what you're doing is you're taking a, a piece of creativity that came out of here and that I'm now sharing that creativity with you so that you can replicate and execute that. That's a, that's a lot of responsibility when you think about it. So if I can take as much time as possible and start off by showing you the proper way to cut something, 
the proper way to grill, saute, sear, fry, braise, roast, whatever it is, then I'm that much more confident in my situation when I leave my restaurant. Whereas if I'm one of those guys who pays people a little bit of money, when they come in, they're kind of left to their own devices, then I end up losing. Then I'm on the road and the next thing you know, I have a cook who doesn't show up. You know, because they just don't care. So I try to create a really good family atmosphere, a good friendly atmosphere amongst everybody. We have a group chat that we all talk through. I implore group chats with people because they have them anyway. They have them without the managers even. You know, in these days with a lot of the, I mean, I use Seven Shift for my restaurant because it's super easy. It's a great communication tool and servers request off. And that's another thing that I talk about with staff is I really try to work around schedules, not just your, your school schedule and your work, but your personal schedule. You know, scheduling is a huge part of this open to close, open to close, open to close. Well, I've, I've got a, I'll reference my daughter again, who at one point went to her boss and said, I'm, I'm a freshman in college. Uh, I have a boyfriend who goes to college three hours away from me and I have a social life. So yes, I want to work here. These are the days that I can work and I'll work every other weekend. But it got to a point that they just weren't paying attention to her schedule. So she ended up giving her notice and leaving the restaurant because of scheduling and she was making great money. So it's not just about the money. It's about a personal life as well. Yeah. Going back to the article you wrote, I think that was one of the major themes there too, is that, you know, yeah. this isn't just something that you're advocating in the wake of the pandemic and the labor shortage. You've really been on this for a long time, this issue. And yeah. I know that, you know, I think you noted in the past as a corporate executive chef, you made that switch and you said that there was a lot of benefits you saw, you know, on the work production side as well, which might not be, you know, it might seem a little counterintuitive, yeah. right? You know, so can you talk about that a little bit, you know, how that increase in quality of life really translated to, you know, better operations at the restaurant? Well, you know, we're, we've been slaves to to a restaurant for all of our career. When you when you think about it, yeah, you got to be here Thursday, man. Nothing I can do. Sorry, it's your daughter's first birthday, but I need you here Thursday night. We could be busy. You know, I mean, that's that's the normal. And then you, then there's a guilt that was laid upon us that if we didn't work that one shift, that we were not going to have a job, we were going to be terminated. And this was at an, uh, this was during a point in time when when uh, employees were in abundance. So. Now, you know, when you look back on that, like imagine, I, I can just think about what it felt like, you know, I mean, my first child was born and I was gone out of the restaurant for one day, one day, you know, because I needed to be in the restaurant. That's what I was always trained to do. When my second child was born, my sous chef uh, came to me and said, I was like, Hey man, uh, I already got the schedule up. It's already ready to go. And he's like, bro, stop doing what you're doing, dude. He's like, we got this. We got this. We got this. We know you have a schedule. We have another schedule for when the baby was born. Everybody's ready for this. So take your five days, which still five days, but that was a big thing. And, and when you start to work around your kitchen, around your staff, and there are times where you have to say, I'm sorry, but I really do need you this night or whatever it is. Uh, you have to, you know, we need to start really taking care of our staff. So scheduling makes a huge difference. If, if that guy can schedule a night out with his girlfriend at, at eight o'clock on a Saturday night or a Friday night, instead of 1130, one night a month, you know, one night a week, that's a great feeling for somebody, especially in the kitchen. So 
Absolutely. And I know we're about halfway through this conversation, so I'd like to yeah. switch gears a little bit here because there is another part of this I want to talk about. And I think most people probably recognize you from Bar Rescue, but they don't, you know, they might not know that you also have this consultancy for independent restaurants, yeah. right? So what I'd like to talk a little bit about is just now, you know, about two years out from the pandemic, give or take at this point, you know, what's the scene like for independent restaurants right now? Are they still really str- struggling? You know, are you seeing success stories, people pivoting? What's like the word on the street right now when it comes to independent restaurants? I think the, the, some of the, you know, let's use a couple of buzzwords real fast. And I think that the first one uh, that always comes to mind um, is support. You know, that's the one thing that I keep seeing over and over and over again is the community support that's out there. People are eating out, man. People are ordering food. You you know, I've got a little spot. We don't have a lot. I've got, you know, 50 seats on the inside with a, in a weird situation with my partner having a distillery and a different license and people are eating out. You know, they're walking down the street. They're going to your local spots. They're, they're going out to dinner. You know, I, I went out with a buddy of mine a couple of weeks ago and uh, we went to go to a couple of local independent restaurants on a Monday night and none of them were open. And we ended up walking into uh, an Applebee's, you know, and, and just sit down at the bar and the bartender was glowing. He could not be more friendly. He could not be more hospitable. He really was on point. And there was nobody in the restaurant. There was nobody in an Applebee's on a Monday night. Now, you know, you go back there Tuesday night and all the restaurants are open and they're all full. So we're seeing a lot of really good support happening within your local communities. Um, The other one that I have to put up right now is technology, man. We have to stay at the forefront of technology. You know, QR codes are more and more uh, a, a huge part of our life every single day. I rely on them in the restaurant. You know, and when a QR code doesn't match a table and then I'm on the phone with my POS company, it's like we have so much reliant on outside services now that we've really got to be abreast of everything that's going to be happening within technology. Um, uh, you know, the other thing that I have to say is is quality. I mean, we have taken a world of plating to a completely different level. Uh, we are no longer, you know, yeah, there's a huge focus on the way that the food looks when it goes out on a plate, but it's also how is it going to look when it gets in the box? Because we're now taking a $35 entree, which you could never, ever fathom ordering two years ago to be delivered to your house by another human being who's probably eating the french fries as he's driving the car okay but we've done that we've put that 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 responsibility into other people's hands so in our place like we have great burgers we have a large box so the burger sits really well but i was getting pictures of things when people were getting home and the burger sliding all over the box so now we do a four ounce bag of our handmade potato chips that go inside of that box that acts as a little bit of a buffer so it's not sliding around as much. We instruct our guests, hey, when you get this stuff, just carry it this way so when you get home, it's beautiful. And then when you get home, if your French fries aren't super hot or super crispy, just call ahead. Your food sat here for 20 minutes. Call ahead. Tell them to turn that oven up to 350. We've already got foil in the bottom of your to-go container. Take it out. Put it on a cookie tray and give it five or ten minutes and let the fries crisp up. We're really working hard to keep that quality going through out to uh, a a whole nother world that we've never had to experience before. And people are digging in our pockets the whole time, whether it be a DoorDash, a Grubhub, an Uber Eats, or it's the to-go containers. You know, the cost of putting food in a box is more expensive than ever before by, in some cases, by 20%. 
So we've actually tracked that a little bit at the Food Institute. Obviously, you know, inflation's affecting every sector yeah. of the business, right? So it's not just packaging, but it is kind of eye-opening to see the costs that are going up for these restaurants. You brought up a couple of points I really want to kind of dig into more. So I think the first one is now that you've opened like a restaurant post-pandemic, I'm assuming, correct? This you're saying? Yes, post-pandemic, yeah. So how much did delivery influence your menu design? Is that something that you really like kind of dig, <laughs> dig into or is it something that you're like, you know, this is what I'm going to make and then I'm going to figure out how to make it for delivery? Or did it have like a part of it in the uh, conception phase? I figured out what box it was going to go in before I figured out what plate it was going to go on. I'm not going to lie. I built this restaurant based off of uh, a very large to-go window that I had put at the end of the line with my partner. Uh, we, we have already planned for our 60 outdoor seats coming up for this, this, you know, once spring hits, uh, when I put this menu together, the first thing that I did was make sure that I had my QR codes. And then I started to print it on everything I could. Every guest who walked in the front door for the first couple of weeks, all received a magnet with my QR code on it for you to pop on the refrigerator. I plan on you sitting at home and ordering my food, or I'm working right now with my local high school to have QR codes put on the bleachers. And you can please, you can literally just scan the QR code from the bleacher. Tell me what entrance you're at and to the, to the stadium, and we will deliver the food over to you. I want you to think about me when you're sitting in line, picking up your child from school or dropping them off at soccer about what you're going to do for dinner. And I have to make it as easy as possible for you to get to me. So we do constant checks with our guests about how was the delivery process, how easy was the online ordering, and we're changing it every single day to make sure that it's as easy for the guest as possible. So regarding that delivery aspect, you know, we don't have to name names who you're using as a partner or anything for that, but is it internal? Is it first party or third party, your delivery service? Uh, it's all third party. Yeah, the cost of, the cost of doing it on the first level is, you know, I mean, it's just, I have a very good friend of mine who has, uh, uh, he's an old client who has, uh, has some amazing pizza shops down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And he's been in business for 30 years and he crushes it. He's got the best pizza anywhere around, but his drivers kill him. You know, you get one guy who smokes a joint as he leaves the parking lot with a whole bunch of pizzas and he goes down and he slides through on a slippery night into an intersection. And now he's got a million dollar lawsuit on his hand. We are now we're no longer responsible for those people. We're no longer. What word am I looking for? We don't have the glove or the wherewithal to hold on to them as we do within a restaurant. We're now putting them out on the road and they're 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 you know kind of relying on what's happening around them. Um, that's a huge cost. One tiny little place like that gets a million dollar hit and you're done. You're screwed. Even if you have insurance, you know, your insurance rates are going to shoot through the roof. So, you know, like how do you contend with the, the cost basically associated with third party? Is that something that you bake into the menu or, you know, something that you just kind of eating? Like, how does that work? So most of the time you just kind of eat it. Okay. Okay. Uh, in a lot of situations, they have a clause in their, in the contract that you sign with them that you're not allowed to have different pricing than you do on your menu. Uh, I know uh, a lot of people that don't follow that model. I'm, I'm, you're taking, if you want to do the basics of it, it is 33.9% plus an additional 30 cents per transaction for me to foot, foot food into a bag to be picked up by an Uber Eats, Grub, Grubhub, DoorDash, Caviar driver. 
That's the basic. Unless you're in LA, New York, Philadelphia, or LA, New York, or any of these other cities that have worked up caps on that stuff, as soon as you step foot out of that outside of that city line, you're immediately getting whacked really hard, and you just kind of have to eat that cost. Um, for me, I spend uh, my first two months of opening restaurants. I use them for free. Um, I get them for free. Uh, after that. I immediately, one week before my contract is up with them, I start the email chain of let's discuss my current rates. What can we do to do this differently? Um, is the, the very simple direction that I go. I have no problem calling a company and saying that I need to discuss my rates with them. Is it's that just the way you that would it works. suggest other independent restaurants Absolutely. Do too? Absolutely. Yeah. If you can get through, if you can find the phone call, find that number to actually get through to one of these companies, go for it. A lot of times, if you just email your onboarding person, the person that signed you up at that point, when you initially reached out, they send you a contact person who you'll pretty much never speak to again. Unless once they will, ha they, I have, I have uh, a, a company right now that sends me two emails a day to remind me to sign a contract that I never even told them I wanted to get on. I just wanted pricing. Okay. So when you get that contact, reach out to that contact and say, who is it that I speak to? And most of the time they'll give you another email or they will give you a direct phone number that you can get through. Um, that's the easiest way to do it. If you don't find any luck with any of that, Hey man, use the power of social media, go onto Twitter and blast them and they will reply to you immediately because they don't want the bad press hitting millions of people. Okay. Now that's, I think that's really useful. I think a lot of our listeners will probably listen to that and be like, you know what, you got to I mean, advocate for yourself, right? Who else is going to? Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I don't think, I think we all got to a point where we accepted what the charges were on these things and we're in a totally different world. I can switch from a POS system in a matter of seconds right now, and I can move over to one that has a much lower credit card percentage, you know, make the phone calls at, you're going to do it with your insurance guy. You, you're, you're, you're fighting your produce guy over the cost of that B-bis potato you just got in, but you're not going to make a phone call about the delivery rate. That's 33.3% plus 30 cents or 33.9 plus a 30 cent transaction fee. They're taking that from you, stealing it. It's definitely an interesting thing. You know, uh, we've done yeah. a lot of work on it, you know, taking a look at the delivery market and, you know, the dynamics are crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's a look. I understand. Like, I'm all for the quality and the or the the convenience of it on both ends. You know, on both ends, I do. But there needs to be a responsibility, or or at least some accountability on these companies for what it is that they charge. You know, uh, for me, I, I don't know. I don't use them that much. Um, we usually end up turning them off as soon as we get busy. So we shut off. We shut them off usually between six thirty and seven o'clock. Interesting. So I know we're running out of time here. So the last thing I want to bring up, Ryan, is just kind of something we talked about a little bit earlier, but we know inflation's on the rise. We're seeing raw materials, labor prices, packaging, to your point, they're all going up. And, you know, it's probably getting more and more difficult for an independent restaurant to kind of operate under these conditions. So I just want to see if you have any tips and tricks, you know, and maybe some personal experience. Are you shifting your menu at all because of this? Are you running into product shortages that are kind of pinching you on certain work days? You know, what's your experience been in the current, you know, dynamic? You know, normally what we do is we, we, we develop a menu and then we figure out what our plating is going to be and, and what, what choices we have with that. Is it a bowl? Is it a, uh, you know, is it a 12 inch? Is it a 10 inch? Is it a basket? Is it a tray? Right now, what we're doing when I design, develop the menu is I'm trying to figure out what's going to work inside of my boxes. 
on in most cases. So um, the other thing that I do is I'm constantly shopping around. Uh, it takes up a lot of time for me to do it. You know, I'm going on different websites, whether it be Webstaurant or I'm heading up to the restaurant store. Luckily, I have one in Philadelphia. I'm dealing with Jetro. I'm dealing with Restaurant Depot. I'm dealing with U.S. Food, uh, Chef's Warehouse. I'm dealing with everybody, including some small purveyors as well. Um, it is, I spend, the funniest part about it is, I spend more time right now on boxes and uh, to-go packaging and everything that's encompassed within that than I am on the cost of my food. I've just accepted the cost of my food because I have a quality. So for me, I'm not buying, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I just don't buy. Uh, I'm not going to buy it. So I have accepted that the cost of my uh, my top round is going to be this price, you know, but my packaging is where I'm spending a lot of my focus time right now uh, because it's, you know, it jumped from what would normally be three to 7% to upwards of 20 to 22, 23% right now. You know, I mean, there's some pretty massive increases. Well, because look, I can buy styrofoam, but I have a problem with buying styrofoam and putting food in it. I was going to say, a lot of consumers have that problem too. So yeah. that, that proportion of the population is growing as well. And that's where the problem lies. Look, styrofoam's easy, man. I can go and buy 250 containers for for th- you know for $35. But right now, what I'm doing is I'm paying $159 for my containers to get 250 in. Because I, I, because I just, I, and, I'm, and I'm all for the public perception of it, but for me, I have a hard time doing it. So much so that we do have one styrofoam container, and that's because it's the only box that I found that will fit my my hoagie and my cheesesteak in it. Because we do a pretty elaborate badia hoagie that's hot and all that stuff. So I do have a styrofoam container for that. But the only reason I still have it in a styrofoam container is because the paper product that I ordered is eight weeks back ordered. And is that something you're seeing like across the board with the packaging, just crazy backlogs, increased prices? Like it's really, to me, you know, talking to you here, it seems like this is a much bigger problem than a lot of people are talking about. You know, mostly what you're seeing is food shortages, you know, or ingredient shortages, et cetera. But you're seeing I went to, on the packaging side? I went to three different stores the other day to buy one number two craft container, three different stores. Okay. And I was lucky enough to find it another one to the point that I now have the guy who runs the paper department at Restaurant Depot letting me know when these boxes come in. And it's not a tip situation. It's a respect situation. You know, these are the guys that I deal with. And and I'm one of those guys. I'm super friendly. You can tell I talk to everybody. I love people. And I am the guy who walks the aisle and says, hey, brother, how you doing today, man? It's good to see you driving that truck really well. Like, you know, I've gotten to know these guys because I'm operating a business. And I don't have the coffers to be able to just buy a $250 box of to-go containers. I've got to really search my product out and find some of the best products that I can to put it in. It's been tough as hell, man. It's been crazy. (laughs) Well, I definitely give you a lot of credit, you know, keeping a business open through the pandemic, even opening one in the wake of it, especially restaurants, definitely a daunting thing to have to do. Uh, And, you know, I really give you a lot of respect. Um, And I want to give you an opportunity here. Any projects, anything you want to bring up, you know, kind of plug and let uh, our audience know about anything coming up? 
Yeah, man. So uh, currently, if you guys are interested and you're in the Philadelphia area, I've got a little spot in the suburbs called Sidebird Kitchen. Uh, it is uh, I partnered up with uh, a brewer and a distiller. So we have some pretty cool products that come out of that front part of the restaurant. And then our food is just super eclectic. We do a lot of really cool stuff with uh, my travels. Wherever I travel, I come back with ideas and I put them on a menu. Um, and I have a project with my brothers that's called World Chef, um, which is a shoppable, shoppable foodie marketplace. Uh, we are part with some of the greatest chefs in the country uh, who we are curating menus with. We have a box system. It is a subscription-based program. You can go to myworldchef.com uh, and you can check that out. We launch in February. Uh, we have already gained tremendous momentum with it. We're really, really excited. Uh, we've got some pretty amazing partners from Jet Tila to Tim Hollingsworth and Tiffany Derry, who just got voted Best Chef in Dallas, and she's doing a gumbo box with us. Um, we have a food school that's involved in all of that that teaches everything from the seven different parts to a knife all the way to how to break down chicken and truss items with call fat if that's what you're interested in uh we've got justin warner from food network on there who i just had the the pleasure of working with last week so we've got some really cool projects going on and in the midst of all of this comes necessity what do people want people want to learn more about the craft that they love to do so that's excellent. And we'll definitely share some relevant links in the description for this episode. So I just want to take the moment here to really thank you again, Brian, you know, definitely an interesting look. I think our audience usually is taking a look more at the macro level, you know, they're looking at, yeah. you know, at the top level, you know, what's going on here, but having that boots on the ground kind of look in, I think it'll be really, really informative. So thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, look, dude, I had, you know, I was away last week and one of my guys didn't feel well and I had to shut the kitchen down for the day. You know, I mean, we're really struggling no matter how well you treat your employees, you still need to take care of them. You know, one guy gets COVID and we're shutting down for an entire two days to clean the restaurant again. And it's been, a, it's been a struggle, but, uh, but I, we're going to come out of this so, so strong. And the thing is we're going to come out strong. And I think that if the operators who are doing it right now really take advantage of this time, we're not only going to come out stronger, but we're going to come out much more profitable. Our staff is going to be different. The pricing is going to start to level out and we're going to already be in that, that kind of uh, uh, frugal mode. And it's going to be good to watch it coming forward. I'm really looking forward to it. We'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Cheers, brother. All right. I want to thank Brian Duffy once again for joining us today. And please remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. And if you're not new and you still haven't done it, please do so. We'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell signing off. Mm -hmm.